Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Joining me today, a friend of mine, somebody I interview quite a bit actually over on Relevant Radio when I get a chance to fill in for uh, Drew Mariani, and that's Michael J. New over at National Review Online. Does a great job of uh, running down the the nuances and the um, and the issues around abortion, abortion restrictions. This is the anniversary, we're right around the anniversary of the Dobbs decision. I should also mention that Michael New is an assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic, the Catholic University of America and a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Um, and Michael, you have to pardon me, the the, uh, the bio does not run trippingly off the tongue because uh, Tom Shosevsky isn't here to, <laughs> isn't here to type him out for me. Yeah, there's a lot there. So, uh, you know, I, it's a pretty long bio. I've uh, attended a lot of schools. I do a lot of writing. And, yeah, that makes for a lengthy bio. It, well, I mean, it's not even that lengthy of a bio. It's just, you know, that, you know, when I when I do stuff with uh, relevant radio, um, you'd be surprised at how how much impact a good producer actually has on a show. Mm -hmm. And Tom produces the heck out of the Drew Mariani show. Really now, Tom does a great job. They, they are blessed to have him. They, they are. He makes it very easy to fill in for Drew. And of course, Drew is just fantastic anyway. So, um, all right. So it is the, it is about the one year anniversary of Dobbs, right? And mm -hmm. I, I guess we could, we could even make May 3rd, the anniversary of Dobbs. Cause that was when the, when the decision was leaked. leaked. Right. Yeah. And so we've had a year or so to study the impact of this. And, and when we're talking about this in terms of, um, politics. A lot of times you'll hear, well, Republicans lost the midterm elections because of Dobbs. Um, they're going to lose, you know, general elections because of Dobbs because it energized uh, the Democrats. It it uh, changed the dynamic back to the you know pro-choice side rather than the pro-life side. I mean, you follow all of these studies, and there's a new one from Gallup that came out last week. What is it actually showing us about those things? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, I was kind of dreading the release of this Gallup poll. I mean, the Gallup does a survey on abortion every year, typically comes out around uh, May or June. And uh, probably since they do polls so often, uh, probably gets more attention than any other abortion survey. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. It actually showed that during the past year, uh, pro-lifers actually made some gains in the court of public opinion. Uh, the pro-life sentiment actually increased from 39% to 44%. So we're talking about a five percentage point gain in pro-life sentiment. Uh, there's also a three percentage point gain in the number of people who thought abortion was morally wrong. So right. despite some very powerful headwinds, I mean, media coverage on sanctity of life issues is never great, but it was especially bad this past year. I mean, there were just seemingly an endless parade of stories about women who poorly couldn't get certain kinds of health care uh, due to these pro-life laws we were passing. Uh, but by and large, you know, pro-lifers were resilient. Uh, we certainly at least held serve, and according to Gallup, actually made some gains in 2023. So that's a reason for optimism. Well, I think so. And, you know, it's taking a look at some of those things uh, from that from the Gallup survey about, you know, moral, you know, moral judgments is basically a whole range of different things. Right. Um, and what I found interesting in that, too, was that there was a certain it wasn't a consist. It wasn't entirely consistent, but there was a certain drift to the conservative across that whole range of issues. And the one that actually had the most movement was same-sex marriages, where there were fewer people overall. You know, many fewer Republicans, and even fewer Democrats that were saying that same-sex relationships are are morally 
um, not morally correct, but, you know, uh, but, you know, positive, moral positive rather than moral negative. And it seemed to me, I mean, abortion was certainly part of that too, but the drift there, I think, was mostly significant, was the, the most significant on, on that, you know, the same-sex relationship. And I'm wondering if that isn't um, a bit of a proxy for the for probably the reaction to the now really active um, transgender movement. And if that isn't pushing some of those numbers, including on abortion, more to the conservative side. Yeah, you're absolutely right that on a lot of issues, social conservatives gain ground. In fact, they even did a question, are you socially conservative? And that meant a five percentage point gain. And we saw gains in the percentage people thought like suicide uh, was morally wrong. Uh, we saw a gain in the percentage of people who thought that changing your gender is morally wrong. So yeah, I do think that uh, you know this push of transgenderism, I think, has given social conservatives a shot in the arm. Uh, I certainly think that uh, you know these stories about uh, you know people you know uh, biological you know men competing in women's sports and you know excelling. Uh, I think just strikes many people quite reasonably as, as unfair. And I think that there's been a pushback and uh, it's impacted the, you know, pulling on transgender issues, but I think uh, pulling on kind of a range of social issues as, as well. Yeah, it's interesting too. As we're talking about this today, as we're talking about this, Riley Gaines was speaking, I think at a Senate hearing. I know she was, it was a congressional hearing, but I think it was on the Senate side, talking about the uh, transgender competition issues. Uh, very powerful testimony. And in fact, I, I, you know, I, I've seen clips floating around, but National Review actually had a very nice roundup of this. Uh, I was mostly relying on that. And uh, it, it was in the Senate because Josh Hawley was one of the people that were um, that was questioning mm. her. Very powerful testimony, I think. And <laughs> including, I don't know if you saw this. I don't know how much of this you've had a chance to see. I mean, I haven't wa- I didn't watch those hearings live, but I've been watching the clips. And apparently one of the Democrats witnesses at this panel was saying, well, you know, Serena and Venus Williams were 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 stronger than, you know, men in their category. So this doesn't make, you know, so this claim doesn't hold water. And Riley Gaines says both Serena and Venus lost the 203rd ranked man (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it wasn't even close. He clobbered them. And Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's a fundamental I think there's two fundamental things. One is there's a fundamental truth that most people understand. There's a scientific, biological science is biological science. And I think people are starting to recognize fundamental untruths, like you can choose your own gender or you can choose to be a woman or you can choose to be a man. I mean, these are sort of nonsensical Mm -hmm. uh, propositions. And I think that that is, and that's the reason why I looked at that study and I linked it in, in, in a headline thing. And I, the more I looked at it, the more I thought that that's really a proxy. It really may not even be about same-sex relationships, but it was the mm-hmm. closest question on that poll to mm-hmm. some of these other issues. And I think it was a real proxy for mm-hmm. especially the transgender stuff. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think people you know, in general can be tolerant of you know the lifestyle choices of others. Well, it starts affecting you know people's nieces and daughters. That's when people get upset. And most people, understandably, if their daughter plays sports, they don't want their daughter competing against biological men. They don't want to have their daughter sharing a changing room or a shower with someone who's a biological man. You know, I think that, you know, it's one thing to let people, you know, live their lives. It's another thing to kind of, you know, voice this on people. And this is being foisted on people. 
campaign. You know, there's not been much discussion. There's not been votes. You know, the UPenn swim team just said that you have to accept that Leah Thomas is now going to be competing with you all. You know, they weren't really given a chance to object or raise concerns. Uh, it was just handed down, you know, to them. So, yeah, I can certainly see why this is uh, causing a bit of a backlash and a, a bit of a pushback. Well, I think that, you know, I think, too, is that people are now feeling like they can talk about this. I mean, because mm -hmm. you know and I know. I mean, we, we operate in media spaces where we've got quite a bit of freedom to talk, right? Yep. If you're mm -hmm. on Twitter, if you're on, especially if you're on Facebook, not Twitter so much these days, thank goodness for Elon Musk in that sense. Um, but if you're on Facebook, if you are talking on you know a, a media platform a, a mainstream media platform especially i mean they just shut these conversations down i think that that is starting to break apart and we're mm -hmm. having these conversations now and that's exposing the you know the lies here that are, mm -hmm. are going into this and that also applies to abortion no absolutely i mean i think that you know very often the mainstream media just likes to pretend that people like us just simply don't exist and thankfully, we have our own platform. We can do things on Twitter. We can do our podcast. We can, and we have Catholic Radio, where these things can be discussed and you know get a, a fair hearing. So uh, I certainly think that uh, you know we've been savvy in how we've used you know alternative forms of media, uh, whether it be Twitter, whether it be online streaming, whether it be podcasts. And yes, I think this is giving an outlet to some voices that are uh, basically being squelched right now or being shut down by the mainstream media. Let's talk about how we're using some of the other opportunities too, because you 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 brought this up a little bit in in terms of what the impact of Dobbs is, right? And again, getting back to the political, a, a number of states passed laws. Actually, they were passing them before Dobbs. Uh, Texas being one of them, where I live, and um, and and that was a you know that was sort of a uh, I would say it, it was not a very serious law. I I don't think it's a great idea to say there's no you don't have to worry about standing you can just everybody can sue courts are never going to go for that eventually that was going to get thrown out anyway now it's pretty much moot because states can now yep. regulate abortion more rationally um and there was a lot of talk about well there's going to be a lot of blowback there's going to be a backlash because all of these you know you know really draconian restrictions on abortion are going to be applied etc 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 you know, I don't think that I saw that. I mean, I think I've seen, you know, we've seen heartbeat bills get passed. And I guess it really depends on your level of draconian. But I think that there's been, at least after the initial idea that we're, we're just going to rush and pass laws all over the place, I think that there's been a, a recalculation on pro-life legislative projects to sort of catch the temper of where each of these states are at. Mm -hmm. I, do you agree with me on that? Because I, to me, that's what it seems like has been happening. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think you had some states with trigger laws in place and some states move quickly. And right now, unborn children are protected in 14 states. And you have about four other states with like gestational age limits in place and a couple of states where there's kind of litigation that, that's ongoing. And I mean, in North Carolina, they probably didn't quite have the votes to protect all pre-born children, uh, but they put in place a 12-week gestation limit. You know, right. and that's a start. You know, I think that that's just a good incremental step in the right direction. I hope they'll go back and pass something more protective in the future. Uh, but that's at least a, a start. 
Uh, you see other states, Florida, sort of the 15-week ban, and you know, Governor DeSantis was able to sign a six-week ban. I think there's some uh, litigation right now that might be holding that up. Uh, but again, it's a step in the right direction. So uh, some of the states that you know are a little more moderate, you know, outside the deep south, like maybe North Carolina, Florida, they've not been able to protect all pre-born children, but they've taken steps in that direction. And I think you know the incremental gains are, are very, very important. What's I mean. First off, incrementalism sometimes is a nasty word in politics, especially when you're dealing with, you know, issues that I think are as um, as as uh, founded on principle as the pro-life movement is. I'm not criticizing the criticism of incrementalism because I understand it. You know, you want to save human beings from being discarded, and it, it, that really is sort of a. If you're going to talk about black and white issues, that's kind of in that realm, right? But I think that when we were discussing this in email, you you made a good point. How many how many human beings are alive now because of the Dobbs decision and because of the laws that have at least restricted access to abortion? And that's actually something that we can get account on. And and you have that that information as well, Michael. Right. That uh, there's a couple of ways to track that. First, there's a group called uh, Society for Family Planning. They're not on our side ideologically, but they are trying to come up with accurate data on the impact of Dobbs. And they have looked at abortion declines in states that pass pro-life laws, and they have looked at abortion increases uh, in other states. I mean, some women laws do a lot of good, but they're not magical. I mean, sometimes right. women do circumvent these pro-life laws by obtaining abortions in other states where the laws are more permissive. And they found that since Dobbs, you know, we've at least saved about 20,000 plus lives through the pro-life laws we put in place. Uh, I would say that might be a low estimate. Uh, one thing I've looked at that I think is interesting is Texas birth data. Uh, that Texas, again, with the Heartbeat Act, was uh, really one of the first states to really put a strong pro-life law in place. And that Heartbeat Act took effect in September 2021. So the children that were not aborted in September were born in March 2022. And in March, there was a big increase in the Texas birth rate. So I would argue that even before Dobbs, uh, because of the Heartbeat Act, uh, just looking at birth numbers, the Heartbeat Act was saving about 1,000 lives every month in Texas, just looking at the increase in the number of births that took place. So these laws are saving thousands of lives. You know, obviously, we uh, have a lot more work to do. You know, our work is not done yet. But the laws that we are passing are having a real impact, uh, saving tens of thousands of lives, and importantly, sparing tens of thousands of women uh, a lifetime of, of regret. Exactly, exactly. So what are the challenges ahead? I mean, clearly, I think the biggest challenge here, and maybe the challenge to some of the data here too, is the, you know, the, the mail-in, um, uh, you know, uh, you know do-it-yourself abortion pills. Um, that may make it a little difficult to, to track some of this data, although I think they're they're calculating that into um, into the mix that that you're talking about here. What other what other challenges do pro-lifers face now that they kind of they kind of got what they wanted in having the Supreme Court send this back to the states? What other challenges are are ahead for the pro-life movement, and how do you think it's going to proceed over the next year or so? Yeah, and I'm going to tell you this: uh, I've lost audio. I could not hear you after my last answer, so uh, I apologize, but I could not hear anything you just said. I'm sorry. Well, okay, so are you hearing me now? Because um, it may be, um, okay, we seem to have restored audio. Michael, uh, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what next steps we need to take, especially in terms of things like the the uh, mail-in abortion pills um, and um, and, you know, where, where some of this legislation is going to go next, especially in the context 
of a national election with conservatives getting sometimes a little cold feet on moving forward on some of these agenda items? Yeah, I just think we can't do the ostrich strategy of sticking our heads in the sand. I think we need to make good, strong arguments in favor of good pro-life laws. And there are good examples of candidates that did that in 2022. You at least have four governors that signed very strong pro-life laws. Uh, Greg Abbott of Texas, uh, Mike DeWine of Ohio, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia, Ron DeSantis of Florida, all signed good pro-life laws, didn't hide, all faced very well-financed Democratic challengers, and all won by significant margins. So in the governor's races, you know, we did very well. So I just think that, you know, we can't hide from the issue. You know, states should pass the most protective laws possible at the federal level. Um, you know, I do think the federal government does have a role to play in protecting preborn children. A national ban probably is not feasible, but I do want to see our Republican candidates come out in favor of some kind of federal legislation that at least protect some preborn children. And I think that, you know, with the mail order abortions, that's something that we have to get a Republican president in place to stop. Uh, the Biden administration, FDA, has really made policies surrounding chemical abortion pills much more permissive. You know, during the pandemic, uh, women could get these chemical abortion pills without an in-person medical exam. The Biden administration, DA, has continued that policy, you know, post-pandemic. That's failed to unborn children and also damaging the health of women. I mean, if a woman is an ectopic pregnancy, she gets a chemical abortion pill, that could be fatal. If she's further along in gestation, she realizes that she has a chemical abortion, that could have serious health consequences. So we need a Republican administration. Uh, Republican appointees the FDA could correct that. And, you know, if not, um, you know, at least put some at least limits on chemical abortion pill use that would be helpful. So, again, we have our work cut out for us, but, you know, no one signed up for the pro-life movement. Think it'd be easy. You know, uh, this is the <laughs> end. It's not the beginning of the end, but maybe it'll be the end of the beginning. So we, we certainly have our work to do, but as always, we're up for it. You know, and I think just really quickly on that point, I think the big mistake last election cycle was the ostrich effect. I think that there were a, a number of people who were proposing, a, a, you know, pretty strong changes in policy, got some media blowback on that, started looking at voter data and decided that they didn't want to talk about it at all. And I think that was the big mistake. Not talking about it was the big mistake because Democrats filled the media space with their presentation on you know, pro-life versus pro-choice. Um, and I think that was actually the big mistake the last time around. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, if there's a vacuum or if you're silent, the other side sets a narrative, and that happened. And there's plenty of things pro-lifers can talk about. I mean, the other side's position on this issue is not popular. Most people don't want abortion legal for all nine months of pregnancy. Most right. people want to know if their daughter is obtaining an abortion, if she's a minor. Uh, most people do not want their taxpayer dollars paying for abortion. That's become the position of the Democratic Party. I mean, even, you know, seven of the eight budgets that President Clinton proposed included the Hyde Amendment. All eight budgets President Obama proposed include the Hyde Amendment. So you had two recent Democratic presidents who at least opposed, for the most part, taxpayer funding of elective abortion. Not Joe Biden. Not only does he think abortion should be legal, he wants your tax dollars and my tax dollars to pay for it. All budgets he's released have uh, not included the Hyde Amendment. So Republicans have quite a lot to talk about and need to take advantage of that in the coming election cycle. I agree. Michael New, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for um for working around the audio problem here. He's the assistant professor of practice at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, a senior associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, and of course, a contributor to National Review, NRO, um, nationalreview.com. And Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. We'll do this again soon. Great, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. God bless. This is Ed Morrissey of hotair.com for Town Hall. 
What did Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Loretta Lynch, and James Comey know about Russia collusion, and when did they know it? John Durham dropped a bombshell in his testimony to the House Oversight Committee. In his report, the special counsel had already revealed that these four had been briefed in 2016 that it was all little more than a political attack from Hillary Clinton. Durham testified that the briefing had included a referral memorandum that Comey received, but Durham discovered that FBI agents assigned to the investigation were never informed of Brennan's briefing or the political context of the Steele dossier. In essence, Comey obstructed the FBI's own investigation. Comey isn't the only one that covered it up. Obama, Biden, and Lynch all contributed to the Russia hysteria that followed. They all knew full well that it was nothing more than a dirty political trick. That certainly smells like, well, collusion. I'm Ed Morrissey.